This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Robert Browning by G. K. Chesterton. Section 7. Chapter 2. Early Works. Part 3. In 1843 appeared that marvellous drama, The Return of the Druses, a work which contains more of Browning's typical qualities exhibited in an exquisite literary shape than can easily be counted. We have in The Return of the Druses his love of the corners of history, his interest in the religious mind of the East, with its almost terrifying sense of being in the hand of heaven, his love of colour and verbal luxury, of gold and green and purple, which made something he must be an oriental himself. But above all it presents the first rise of that great psychological ambition which Browning was thenceforth to pursue. In Pauline, and the poems that followed it, Browning has only the comparatively easy task of giving an account of himself. In Pippa Passes he has only the less easy task of giving an account of humanity. In The Return of the Druses he has for the first time the task which is so much harder than giving an account of humanity, the task of giving an account of a human being. Jabel, the great oriental impostor, who is the central character of the play, is peculiarly subtle character, a compound of blasphemous and lying assumptions of the Godhead, with genuine and stirring patriotic and personal feelings. He is a blend, so to speak, of a base divinity and of a noble humanity. He is supremely important in the history of Browning's mind, for he is the first of that great series of the Apologia of Apparently Evil Men, on which the poet was to pour out so much of his imaginative wealth. Jabal, Fra Lippo, Bishop Blogram, Sludge, Prince Hohenstyle Schwangau, and the hero of Fifine at the fair. With this play, so far as any point can be fixed for the matter, he enters for the first time on the most valuable of all his labours, the defence of the indefensible. It may be noticed that Browning was not in the least content with the fact that certain human frailties had always lain more or less under an implied indulgence, that all human sentiment had agreed that a profligate might be generous, or that a drunkard might be high-minded. He was insatiable. He wished to go further and show in a character like Jabal that an impostor might be generous and that a liar might be high-minded. In all his life, it must constantly be remembered, he tried always the most difficult things. Just as he tried the queerest meters and attempted to manage them, so he tried the queerest human souls and attempted to stand in their place. Charity was his basic philosophy. But it was, as it were, a fierce charity, a charity that went man-hunting. It was a kind of cosmic detective who walked into the foulest of thieves' kitchens and accused men publicly of virtue. The character of Jabal in The Return of the Druses is the first of this long series of forlorn hopes for the relief of long-surrendered castles of misconduct. As we shall see, even realizing the humanity of a noble impostor like Jabal did not content his erratic hunger for goodness. He went further, again, 
and realize the humanity of a mean impostor like Sludge. But in all things he retained this essential characteristic, that he was not content with seeking sinners. He sought the sinners whom even the sinners cast out. Browning's feeling of ambition in the matter of the drama continued to grow at this time. It must be remembered that he had every natural tendency to be theatrical, though he lacked the essential lucidity. He was not, as a matter of fact, a particularly unsuccessful dramatist, but in the world of abstract temperaments he was by nature an unsuccessful dramatist. He was, that is to say, a man who loved above all things plain and sensational words, open catastrophes, a clear and ringing conclusion to everything. But it so happened, unfortunately, that his own words were not plain, that his catastrophes came with a crashing and sudden unintelligibleness which left men in doubt whether the thing were a catastrophe or a great stroke of good luck, that his conclusion, though it rang like a trumpet to the four corners of heaven, was in its actual message quite inaudible. We're bound to admit on the authority of all his best critics and admirers that his plays were not failures, but we can all feel that they should have been. He was, as it were, by nature, a neglected dramatist. He was one of those who achieved the reputation, in the literal sense, of eccentricity by their frantic efforts to reach the centre. A blot on the scutcheon followed the return of Drusus. In connection with the performance of this very fine play, a quarrel arose which would not be worth mentioning if it did not happen to illustrate the curious energetic simplicity of Browning's character. MacReady, who was in desperately low financial circumstances at this time, tried by every means conceivable to avoid playing the part. He dodged, he shuffled, he tried every evasion that occurred to him, but it never occurred to Browning to see what he meant. He pushed off the part upon Phelps, and Browning was contented. He resumed it, and Browning was only discontented on behalf of Phelps. The two had a quarrel. They were both headstrong, passionate men, but the quarrel dealt entirely with the unfortunate condition of Phelps. Browning beat down his own hat over his eyes. McCready flung Browning's manuscript with a slap upon the floor. But all the time it never occurred to the poet that McCready's conduct was dictated by anything so crude and simple as a desire for money. Browning was, in fact, by his principles and his ideals, a man of the world, but in his life far otherwise. That worldly ease which is to most of us a temptation was to him an ideal. He was, as it were, a citizen of the New Jerusalem, who desired with perfect sanity and simplicity to be a citizen of Mayfair. There was in him a quality which can only be most delicately described, for it was a virtue which bears a strange resemblance to one of the meanest of vices. Those curious people who think the truth a thing that can be said violently and with ease might naturally call Browning a snob. He was fond of society, of fashion, and even of wealth. But there is no snobbery in admiring these things, or any things, if we admire them for the right reasons. He admired them as worldlings cannot admire them. He was, as it were, the child who comes in with the dessert. He bore the same relation to the snob 
that the righteous man bears to the Pharisee, something frightfully close and similar, and yet an everlasting opposite. End of section 7 The end of chapter 2